Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Good afternoon, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Uh, today, my guest will be Raymond Powell, a former co-host of mine on one of my previous radio shows, known as the North Virginia Patriots Show. Um, if this is your first time tuning in to V Radio, please visit my website, v-radio.org. Uh, there you can find in the archives more shows like this one, interviews with documentary filmmakers, uh, congressmen, senators, presidential candidates, uh, activists, <laughs> scientists, and also just um, roundtable discussions about different things that are going on in our world. You can also check out my must-see TV list, which is a list of free documentaries you can watch on the Internet that I feel are vital information to anyone interested in making the world a better place. Uh, finally, if you like what you hear on B-Radio, this is a listener-supported effort. I am essentially an independent journalist who works for you, the activist. If you would be interested in contributing, you can go to my website and click the Donate button, and there with uh, either PayPal or credit card, you can do your business. <laughs> so thanks again to everyone who has supported V-Radio so far, and I guess now it's time to launch into the conversation. Ray, welcome to V-Radio. Thanks, Neil. Great to be here. It's probably been like, oh man, a few years since you and I have been on the air together? I think about that. Yeah, yeah. at least. So... Well, Ray, um, you know, as I told you off the air, and uh, it's kind of my tradition to, you know, to introduce a new guest to my listeners by asking them the question, "What is the precipice for you? What was the moment that made you decide to be an activist, to go from being someone who's just part of the world to someone who's making it better?" Right. Well, yeah, I kind of would describe myself for most of my life as basically an armchair philosopher, economist, and historian. You know, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, when I when I made the transition into activism itself, when I got off my butt and left the house, I'd have to say that was that was when Ron Paul uh, was running for the the Republican uh, nomination in 2007. Right. Yeah. So that was that was really the event. Yeah, the 2008 election um, is actually that was that was what where you and I met, and that's also where I got started. So. Uh, you know, more specifically, what I usually tell people is there was a video that a friend of mine linked me called Ron Paul Courageously Speaks the Truth. <laughs> and the, the video is still on YouTube. And every now and then I go back and watch it just kind of as a, you know, a, a, a trip down memory lane into what got me to decide, hey, maybe activism is viable. Here's this candidate who's speaking the truth about foreign policy. So, oh, yeah. Um, now, Those early days were great. Yeah, for sure. Now, you also uh, helped organize the Revolution March in Washington, D.C. You want to talk about that? Yeah, we were on a roll for a while with the whole thing. You know, um, it just started, I'm here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So my first thing was getting involved in one of the meetup groups. You know, these things, the 2007, nobody knew what meetup was, but there were groups popping up all over the place, thousands of them for Ron Paul, and one happened here in, in in Albuquerque, I was the second one to say I was interested, and within a week or two, we had 20 or 30, and um, we started networking there. Um, and then next thing you know, I was involved in the Ron Paul Radio uh, project, where we were doing broadcasting, internet broadcasting, and, and at that time, it was just rocking and rolling, you know, there was just so much energy and so much interest with people with the with the Ron Paul message. And um, that eventually led in as Ron Paul kind of was slowly in 2008 admitting defeat, you know, was very disappointing for us mm-hmm. because we didn't feel defeated. We felt empowered. And here's Ron Paul telling us, well, it's essentially over and that he was not going to run third party, which was 
a shocker for most of us. We we kind of had a hunch he probably would just say, well, if the Republicans won't respect me, I'm going to go third party. But he wasn't going to do that, at least not then. And so at that time, uh, another friend of ours and associate, uh, Brian, Brian Seaman, uh, we were just talking, what are we going to do? We got to do something, you know, we can't just, this can't be the end of this, you know, we can't let people all just forget it, say it's over and, and forget about everything they've been excited about, you know, we got to find a way to harness that energy and keep it moving. So our idea was a march in D.C. and um, we put up a website and we got on a, a conference call where Ron Paul was speaking and we made it a quick announcement about that website and it just kind of took off from there. It was just, so... Uh, Within four or five months, you know, we had this march going on. That was uh, July of 2008, right? Yeah. yeah. No, that was that was great stuff. Uh, I yeah. know that you guys thought maybe a few thousand people would show up, and then a hell of a lot more people showed up. Yeah, it was pretty amazing when you watched the video. I mean, it just we we closed they closed down uh, Constitution Avenue from us. We for us we marched from the Washington Monument to the Capitol. So it was it was great, and we had that street jam packed, and it probably took close to a half hour for the entire from the beginning to the end of the procession. So that you know the estimates are around ten thousand people. Nobody knows for sure, but we had great lineup of speakers for eight hours. It topped off with Ron Paul himself, and it was just a great day. Um, I think uh, other than the heat, <laughs> you know everybody just had a great time, and. Um, and it was good for everybody to see that they weren't alone. And people from all over the country, of course, were coming to this thing. So it was it was nice. It was a good lead-in um, to what Ron Paul continued to do with his uh, campaign for liberty. For sure. And, you know, there are actually people within the Zeitgeist movement who still, you know, for sure, you know, quote Ron Paul from time to time, some who even plan to vote for him. And it generally what I, you know, my own political views, as you remember, at that point, I kind of, like, when there was no third-party candidate, I decided to help Senator Mike Gravel when he went libertarian, and um, I also continued to, you know, obviously support the a lot of what Ron Paul does, and I still wear a Ron Paul button. Um, my economic beliefs have obviously changed, but overall, uh, you know, if I had to pick a conservative, at least, you know, I sincerely believe that the man actually cares about right. his citizens. And I'll take a man who cares that I don't agree with over a man who doesn't care, who I, you know, who claims to be saying things I agree with any day, um, although I don't agree with most politicians. Yeah, uh, no, I'm with you there. You know, Ron Paul, what sets him apart, I think, is that um, he, you know, a lot of guys say they're not, they're not inside the Beltway guys, mm -hmm. you know. Ron Paul really isn't. He just isn't. And you, 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 anything. If he wins this Republican nomination now or at any time, it really is a coup. I mean, it's nothing less than a coup uh, because the powers that be in the Republican Party certainly don't want him. Uh, but that won't necessarily stop it from happening. And if it does happen, it really will be because Ron Paul is not interested in satisfying the powers that be in the Republican Party, the powers that be in the economic world, the powers that be in mega corporations, the powers that be in the media. He's really not interested in pleasing them. He's interested in enlightening people and bringing them together based on truths that are really discussed in our modern, you know, socio-political circles. I think also uh, another interesting note that I usually tell my liberal friends about is that Ron Paul made it clear that uh, 
one of his first choices for running mate would be Congressman Dennis Kucinich. And uh, Kucinich is definitely also one of my favorite statesmen. And uh, the prospect of the two of them working together uh, would actually be really powerful. Uh, and especially since he's one of the only candidates to come out for the Occupy movement, and I have a lot of Occupy listeners. You know, he just flat out made, made videos and publicly stated that he supports the Occupy movement, which is a risky uh, thing at best for most politicians right now. They've already got lobbies forming to go after anyone who supports the Occupy movement. Um, and I think that overall, uh, you know, I, it keeps coming back down to sincerity. You know, it, it really comes down to the fact that even if I don't agree with everything that some of these people say, there are very rare politicians who are of a quality that actually do care. You know, whether or not I think they're going to be completely effective in their roles only because of the system itself um, making it very difficult uh, is is secondary at that point. You're trying to give, you know, kind of a voice to these ideas that are superior and the concepts of basic, you know, fundamental liberty. You know, you may not agree with everything that, you know, some, you know, a given politician says at the end of the day, particularly when it comes to economic stuff, since a lot of my listeners do lean to the left. But at the same token, at least, you know, you're not going to be sent to any illegal wars. At least, you know, you're not going to be, uh, you know, your, your personal liberties are not going to be taken from you. And I think that that's something that none of the other people on the ticket, as of this time anyway, uh, can offer. I haven't had yeah. a chance to see what the Green Party is doing, um, which I generally agree with the Green Party's platform pretty much across the board, but I've yet to really been compelled by any of their politicians. Um, and I, I have yet to, and unfortunately, Dennis Kucinich can't run because there's already a Democrat in office. Uh, so it, that pretty much means I'm probably going to end up, you know, sticking my vote on, you know, for Ron Paul at the end of the day because of the fact yeah. that there's just nothing else on there that is appealing, right. even to a conscientious liberal. There's nobody on the ticket that would, you know, I mean, unless they happen to be, you know, an Obama supporter for some reason, there's really no one for them to vote for. So, right. Um, I think, I think, yeah, I agree with you there. And what what sets Ron Paul apart is more than any ideology, is that his heart is in enlightening the people mm -hmm. and bringing them to reach their own conclusions based on some good, solid information. Whereas most politicians are about deadening down the discussion and, and force feeding a propaganda uh, in an, uh, without even the depth of an ideology, you know? And um, that, that's what, that's what happens with most politicians. And Ron Paul just isn't that. And so it's what, that's what's amazing that he's achieved any success as a politician in political circles. And that's what sets him apart, I think. And looking back on it now, Ray, I mean, would you have ever imagined back when we were struggling to get Ron into debates that he'd be in a position where he could say, no, nah, I don't want to go to that debate? Okay. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Recently on CNN, he, uh, you know, the CNN debate, he was one of many candidates, actually, that apparently decided not to attend the March 1st debate. And I read that and I was like, Wait, what? You know, <laughs> just a lot like, happens. A lot has happened in four years, Neil, and it's mm -hmm. you know we know we know guys like you and me and thousands and millions of others help make that happen. So it feels good. It feels you know that's that's what that's the payoff in activism for sure. And that's why another thing is that I would point out to people because like a lot of my listeners you know understand that my belief generally about politics is that it, because the system's kind of stacked against us. You can't really, even if he doesn't get elected, however, a lot of, you know, pretty much, uh, I mean, and when you think about it, the efforts that were put into the activism about Ron Paul, the idea of getting the those ideas into the ears of human beings is what has changed the dialogue. Like, you know, they researched the Federal Reserve 
hoping to try to discredit Ron Paul, suggesting he was a quack because the media was desperately trying to do so and is still kind of doing so. Uh, well, I'd say they still are, nowhere near as bad as they used to be because they realize it's not in their best interest anymore because angry Ron Paul supporters call them up and tell them to cut it out. Um, but, uh, you know, is the fact that, um, you know, we're talking about the Federal Reserve now because of Ron yep. Paul's candidacy. And even though he didn't win, there's a lot to be said for partisan politics, essentially. Like, I remember talking to the Socialist Party candidate of 2008, Brian Moore, good guy. Um, and I didn't agree with everything he said, but when I asked him, you know, like, so what is, you know, people are asking, you know, what is the point of running as a Socialist Party candidate, you know, since you guys have never had anyone elected? He's like, He's like, that's a very good question, and you're absolutely right, and the reason why I'm still doing it, and the reason why the Socialist Party has been doing it, actually, for a lot longer than people know, is that uh, when you're a partisan politician, um, people can either adopt your policies that people like, or they can lose votes to you. And, you know, he pointed out that uh, the, you know, because, I mean, people are already calling Obama and Democrats socialists in general, he pointed out that in order to get the Socialist Party's support, which used to have a lot more support, particularly in labor, uh, they either had to adopt certain Socialist Party policies or they were going to lose votes to them. And that's why that's where the the whole you know socialist aspect of the Democratic Party comes from, is from them adopting those policies. And whether you agree with those policies or not, it still points out that there is a a point to running as a politician, even if you know you're never going to win, um, based on the premise that you know you will influence the the dialogue because There's no question and Ron Paul Ron, Ron Paul has had the wisdom to know that for many many years the guy never ceases to surprise us I'll, I'll go out on a limb and say with his brilliance and uh, you know it, it, every decision every time I find myself doubting his decision within months or years I'm kicking myself and saying you know that guy knows what the heck he's doing and that's certainly been one of his missions all along. Well, uh, it's just, but yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, but just to point out, you know, it's basically the idea is just to note that, you know, you can still affect the the world even if you don't win. Exactly. Right. And yeah. he's known that. And that's, and that's why that's, that's probably the wisdom behind his decision to stay a Republican rather than go third party, because as a third party, nobody would be hearing a word he has to say now as a Republican as one of four at this point, he's on the stage, on the on the big spotlight, on the major media, uh, being heard. So very wise decision in hindsight, e- even though many of us were da- outright angry with him at times. <laughs> right. For a second well, Republican, you know. Well, it's the same thing. I mean, Dennis has to do certain things to to stay in the good graces of the Democratic Party, and at the end of the day. You know, that could be frustrating sometimes, but, you know, I'd rather have Congressman Kucinich on C-SPAN than no Congressman Kucinich on C-SPAN because he you, you got to pick your battles. Um, yeah. You know, and both Kucinich and Paul are in a rare instance that their constituents happen to know who they are and love them. The right. average congressional constituency has no frickin' idea who their congressman is, um, let alone, you know, what their policies are. When I ran for Congress, though, I kind of got to see a little bit of partisan politics. And mind you, this is speculation on my part, but... Uh, my opponent um, was a total neocon type, at least try, you know was pretending to be anyway. It looked like she was trying to be – she was hoping to get appointed by to something by George Bush is what most people surmise. But Candace Miller in the 10th District in Michigan um, had a reputation even on Wikipedia for being a rubber stamp for the Bush administration. And then I brought that up on TV and on the radio frequently um, as a, li- a libertarian candidate. And lo and behold, she votes against the bailout. 
and her specific statement was, I'm tired of George Bush trying to push through legislature based on fear tactics. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. Where have I heard that before? <laughs> welcome, welcome to American politics. Right. And so at the end of the day, I mean, we didn't, you know, they still gave the bailout, but she did vote against it. And I can, you know, I can't prove that she did it because of me. But after I started doing it, the Democratic candidates started doing it and the Green Party candidates started doing it. And eventually that that creates an effect. Um, and uh, to get like to for those of you in the Zeitgeist movement listening, you could go back to my original article in the very first Zeitgeist newsletter entitled uh, Using the Political System as a Soapbox. Uh, and the term from that comes from the fact that literally during the Depression, back when Jacques Fresco was doing his thing, people were literally standing on soapboxes, <laughs> giving their solutions to what would be going on. And when you run as a candidate um, or support a candidate, essentially, I got invited on you know radio and TV in ways that I would never be um, if it weren't for the fact I was a candidate. You don't get on as much, obviously, but it's it's essentially free advertising for whatever you want to say. I mean, I could have said anything when I was. Um, you know, on the on the air, and I, you know, I said my my piece at the time. My, a lot of my positions have changed; many of them have not. But it still gave me an opportunity to kind of reach the people in another way. So now right. we've kind of went on about that, you know, a little more than I had originally intended. But I think it was all good information for the listeners. Now, uh, Ray, you're writing a book. Um, you know, some life changing things have happened to you, and you know, let's talk about that. Like, what is the working title of your book? The working title is Return to Grace, Mankind's Journey Afar and the Coming Return Home. That's very compelling. So let's talk about that. What's the book about? Well, uh, gosh, I guess the best way to probably tell you is I'll just read a paragraph in the introduction here. Go right ahead. I am a seeker, or maybe a better description would be an armchair philosopher, economist, and historian. I was brought up in modern America in a middle-class white family of European ancestry. I've never quite been comfortable with the way things are and never really felt myself to be part of normal society in a meaningful way. My spirit and my experience have led me to strongly question the status quo. My intense journey of discovery has led me to understand myself as I have come to understand our species. I've come to believe there's a better way to live. If you are a seeker like me, you may have noticed the fact the most every religious tradition, historical understanding, and cultural myth share a unified core theme. This theme of mankind's great fall infers a transition which caused him to leave the perfect lifestyle in the perfect garden where all was well because man took from what was provided, left the rest, and was in constant awe and wonder of everything around him. His lack of understanding allowed him a perfect peace and balance with all that is. His lifestyle was no different from the bunnies in the fields, and thus he was no different. He saw himself as one with all, the bunnies, the trees, and even the rocks. You may have reached the further understanding that this fall seems to be synonymous with the transition of man from hunter-gatherer into agriculturalist. You may have noticed the similarities between the religious ideas of separation from God and the historical descriptions of agricultural societies with their advanced language and division of labor, dominating the hunter-gatherer cultures into existence, into extinction. This compilation essentially attempts to, uh, to further that concept and talk about that. And, and the, the way I did it is just, you know, like basically, I've been thinking about this for a long time. And, you know, putting it all in a logical, point-by-point, -point, either historical or categorical progression was the difficult part. So 
And that's what kind of stopped me from getting started for uh, many months. So what I finally decided on after uh, seeing Buchner do it um, was it was a dictionary style or an encyclopedia style where I'm just going to list terms A through Z, alphabetical order, and, and just talk about those terms and, and then allow, especially with, you know, uh, the ability to publish this on the web, you know, with the, with the added benefit of hyperlinks, allow the, the reader to kind of follow the journey as it best fits, you know, their line of thinking and their, their understanding. Sure. sure. Now, I guess, uh, the, first of all, I would like to ask you, what, what is it that inspired you to decide to write a book? Well, I knew I had something to say, uh, based on my particular journey and, you know, in the, in the spirit of, uh, you know, I, I, of, of the philosopher's creed, so to say, I guess, um, you know, I just felt that if I'm feeling and, and discovering this journey that I'm not alone, that probably some others have experienced it as well. And so let's try to put some things down where we can find some common ground, uh, largely to help bring things to a level of discussion. Essentially, I think, you know, if this is published online, it's going to be a good forum where each topic on its own can be uh, a great meaningful discussion, you know, to bring people to a common understanding from even if they come from very different ideological backgrounds. Right. And I guess now at this point, so the, the, the crux is to kind of really discuss and to hammer out how mankind went from, you know, hunter-gatherers and which you would describe as the perfect garden uh, into the state that we're in now and I guess, you know, does this kind of lean towards a suggestion as of, uh, like, say, an anarcho-primitivism model? Well, I certainly think there is something to be learned from primitivism and from from the way the hunter-gatherers existed. You know, the, the final paragraph of the intro that I didn't read is essentially, a man can never go back to that perfect garden. You know, in other words, he can never be hunter-gatherer again. That would be just silly. You know, we're separate forever were irrevocably changed. So now we must find ways to minimize our suffering through a return to unity. And I, essentially, in the end, we will learn to embrace the wonder of the great mystery. Uh, and that's going to happen uh, either by we peacefully decide through governments, through societal constructs to make that change, or we're going to essentially destroy ourselves largely and, and – uh, from the ashes that are left, we will have no choice but to embrace what the heck we did wrong and look back to what is a better way. Now, I guess uh, you, as you've kind of gone through a lot of you know, transformations in yourself personally, uh, would this just be like your recent research that's kind of brought you to this, this thought pattern or were you were you headed that way for a while? Yeah, I mean, no, it's it's fairly recent, uh, within two years for sure. Um, you know, essentially when when politics started colliding with spiritual ideas, I guess, when, when you know, when you dig down deep into modern understandings of philosophical and sociopolitical concepts, you know. Sure. Libertarianism, capitalism, uh, communism, you know, and all these concepts we talk about, um, they're all based at some level on truths we all say exist, natural rights, etc., 
So uh, when that started to collide with the spiritual aspects for me, I really did have a strong feeling at some point that was a major shift for me that we really are at some level of spiritual warfare on this planet. Right. And that there really is, uh, there really is two, two memes fighting for domination or fighting for, you know, uh, fighting to be the way we move forward. And essentially... The one meme is conquering everything and, and selfishness as a species. And that's been dominating uh, our culture for about 10,000 years, roughly. And that um, the other has always been there. there. All throughout history, there's always been that, that minority saying, hey, guys, you know, uh, I think we should slow down here. There might be a better approach. And, of course, they've always been demonized, trampled. Uh, you know, stifled from being heard. Sure, and I think that uh, that's largely because the the system. I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that, but one of the chief ones I would say comes from the fact that people are are kind of comfortable where they're at, even if there is a better way. Um, and they're they're afraid when someone presents change. Uh, we we obviously encounter that in Venus Project or Zeitgeist Movement activism all the time. Um, and they like things the way they are, uh, and they would also prefer that people did not rattle their cage, you know, and make them actually think about maybe there is a better way. Um, and I think that that's largely, you know, also in many cases, I think it's because these people inherently realize that there is an impending doom coming their way and and they're really trying to pretend that's not the case. Exactly. And, And so regardless of, you know, what system that people suggest, it's clear that something needs to change. Uh, in a very unfortunately vast way, because we we come to a point where the Earth is not able to sustain whatever it is that we're doing. It's not going to be a matter of choice at that point. Uh, it's a matter of here's your circumstances. It's like if it's raining, you can't choose not to get wet unless you happen to have you know a structure. But you see my meaning. You know, uh, if 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 it's cold out, you can't choose to make it warm out. It's just cold, and now you need to deal with it. And I think that one of the major problems we have in mankind is that we're coming to a point where it's like a point of no return. We're going to get to a point where we're not going to be able to fix it if we're not careful, and we could render the planet uninhabitable. And at that point, you know, no amount of uh, people thinking it's their right to to have a certain lifestyle is going to matter at all. You know, it's because uh, reality is going to come crashing down on them. And I think that. Right. It would behoove us, uh, especially, it's one of the other things that, like, you know, for example, people like Michael Rupert, I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but um, he's one of the guys that outed the CIA for uh, trying to get him to sell drugs to pay for the the death squad cartels in South America. But his recent work is mostly about the fact that we're reaching the end of oil, and we need to to develop an infrastructure that is not utilizing oil, and if we're going to do it in a way that's not going to take a million years... We need to utilize oil that we have for towards the purpose of rendering oil obsolete. And, of course, the oil companies are not really into that plan because they want to continue making money on on their commodity. Um, and it, it kind of comes to a point where you, you reach the end. You're like, okay, well, um, you, now you're rich, but the world has no energy, so what are you going to do with your money? Um uh, so I think, I think we're reaching that conclusion in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah, and that's I think that um, especially like examinations of where we came from, like you're suggesting, are very important to understanding where we're going. Because if, if we, especially if we don't 
take some kind of action immediately to, you know, constructively try to find a way to ensure that we don't end up in that situation. Um, you know, we're we're going to all be doomed to to living in stone age conditions. Um, yeah. and so that's essentially, you know, I guess the crux of why the conversation you're having is very important. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, I hope that the listeners will check it out and, you know, give it some time. And I guess now uh, we had a lot of great conversations about this. And I think that you know, we also discussed the issue of spirituality a little bit. And um, obviously a, a great deal of my listeners are atheists. I think, however, that it's important to understand that even if you don't have a metaphysical belief behind a given philosophy it does not mean that you know that is invalid i'm actually in the middle of writing a book myself called the atheist knight where i talk about how the the seven what are expect, accepted as the seven cardinal virtues and the seven deadly sins you know have validity even if you don't believe that demons or gods are going to punish you um because they all have aspects of themselves that make perfect sense on their own Gluttony makes you fat. Sloth makes you unhealthy. Wrath makes you a jerk. You know, <laughs> these are right. all built-in right. things that I don't need God to explain for me. So it's still valid to discuss these philosophical aspects, particularly when you're discussing what your place is on the earth. You know, a, sure. Native, a Native American believes that digging holes in the earth, you know, is raping his mother. Even if it's not literally raping his mother, you know, pollution is a bad idea because we live yeah. here. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, whatever. I mean, let's call them Jung, Jungian ar- archetypes then, if that makes you feel better. You know, these mm-hmm. are these are concepts that seem to resonate. And so, uh, you know, metaphysical religious ideas are very similar if you study across all religions and spiritual practices. The similarities are are there they're in you can't miss it they're in front of your face it's always there and and one theme that's that's always there at the core to tie together two of the things you were just talking about is that you know yeah look we're on this journey we have mass wealth and freedom and all this stuff supposedly uh but are we happy are you know the, the question everybody you know that's always asked by that quiet majority are we happier at the end of the day are we more, do we feel closer to a meaningful existence? And so that's that's where it gets spiritual for me. I mean, because I think we all seek happiness. And for, for many who are uh, more deep in their, in their thinking of the world, happiness does also mean uh, a synchronicity with purpose for their existence, you know? Right. And the funny thing is, is the answer to that question is, in most cases, we're not. And even the rich are not, you know, I mean, you look at all these celebrities, you know, and you keep seeing, oh, you know, pulled over for drunk driving, drug abuse, you know, whatever. If having every, if having all of the quote unquote monetary success was everything it was cracked up to be, then we wouldn't have these people living the lives that they are, um, where, which is generally behavior that's, you know, personified by someone who's not really enjoying themselves. Right. Um, Right. uh, For a long time, that, that caused me a very negative feeling that, you know, the world, is a terrible place. Everything we're doing is wrong. It's all headed a bad direction. But, you know, Dwayne Elgin kind of, he wrote a book called The Living Universe, which I highly recommend. And he took this all into a new perspective for me in that he says, well, maybe this journey was just a necessary part of our evolution as a mm-hmm. species. You know, maybe we just had to go through this selfish phase of 
what can I do? You know, it's thinking of the species as a, as an individual for a moment, which I think is a very valid way to approach this. The species, the entire species as an individual is saying to themselves, well, look at all I can do. Look at me. I can build this and make that and figure this out. I can conquer the entire universe. At some point, he's saying, well, maybe I can't. You know, maybe there's some things and we're starting to hit that point. I think, I think all of us, you know, guys like you and me for sure. And, and we're not alone at all, of course, uh, are, are, nor are we new, but uh, we're we're starting to to get to the point where we're saying, hmm, maybe it's maybe I I don't like being alone. Maybe I I'm looking for something more. Maybe it's time to get some counseling on my narcissism. Maybe I should start going to church and trying to see what this God thing is. I mean, that's kind of where we're at. I think these ideas are starting to pop into the head of the species, and um, we're, we're we may be ready to start taking another look. Right, and that's actually, you know, a lot of people look for these these kinds of solutions at this point, and I think that it's important also to take a very concise look at, even beyond just the supernatural, people need to look into themselves. Um, like, you know, I'm an agnostic, agnostic atheist, and um, and so therefore, you know, if you can prove it, it means something to me, but I don't, I don't find myself being negative to people who are religious unless they think that that gives them the right to control other people. But what I would say that is valuable even to religious people is, you know, because I've even heard, you know, ministers and pastors, for example, give this advice, is don't find yourself um, coming up with supernatural excuses for every bad thing that happens to you. Don't don't blame Satan. You know, really look at yourself. What are you doing? You know, what are you thinking? What 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 is it that you're doing, you know, or, you know, what choices are you making that are bringing you to these circumstances? And sure. that's not to say that spirituality at that point is completely useless, because it's not. Um, I think it's more a matter of suggesting that, you know, don't allow your quest for spirituality to give your imagination an excuse for you to get out of, you know, any uh, consequences for your own behavior, your own oh, actions. Absolutely. Your that, that's the key, and that's really at the root of every spiritual tradition. You'll find that lesson. Uh, it's there. It's, it's often buried. It's often not talked about by the low-level, uh, often hypocritical people who run around saying that they're part of a particular religion. Um, but it's there the same. And what what I mean, it's best described. I mean, an amazing, amazing book uh, by Gerald G. May, M.D., called "Will and Spirit" is all about that exact concept, which is he, he defines the very uh, subtle difference subtle but yet massive difference between willingness and willfulness. And what what he is explaining is that we need a spiritual approach, a contemplative approach, and a healthy approach for an individual and for a species is to, to say that I need to be willing to move forward, willing to do things. I'm not going to sit back passively and do nothing, um, but I'm going to be willing through a guidance, and I'm going to ask for guidance from a supernatural force or or whatever that means to you, whether that's what's reaching deep into yourself and asking yourself. It's the same thing, but you're, the point is you're asking kind of a higher power. You're asking something greater than your ego for guidance constantly, and you, you, will, you are willing to follow that guidance. Uh, willfulness, willfully acting out, is something where you're really just striving to, for selfish ego fulfillment and that is that is never a healthy approach, and of course you're going to find that all over in various religions where they're willfully demanding that people, well, you have to believe in my particular 
memes of understanding, you know, whether it's sure. whether Jesus Christ is God or whatever it is, it's that's a very willful approach and that's it, I guarantee you those leaders of that religion at some level if you get to the right guys will tell you, "No, I don't support that." Right. And well, and it so um but when discussing on uh, issues of uh I think that when it comes to like especially when we're talking about the state of the planet, we're talking about the state of, you know, mankind, you know, there are good things to be had on on all of these points, and I, I usually tell atheists the same thing. Um, just because it was quoted by a religious icon does not mean you should automatically discount it if you happen to be an atheist. You know, uh, I still quote the uh, the story where Jesus, um, you know, deals with the Pharisees who want to stone that woman, um, because I think that you know that's the you know let he without sin cast the first stone. Because even if you're not a Christian, you can appreciate the fact that Jesus kind of pwned those guys. <laughs> Because you know they they showed up and they're you know they're they're going all over on this lady who they accused of being a prostitute and they wanted to, they want to kill her and of course they're trying to trap Jesus uh, so that they can get him in trouble and he just is like well uh, well sure uh, let, let's do this the first of you who's never done anything wrong well you get started you're going to be the one who gets to throw the first rock right and exactly. they all I mean, just kind of stand there going oh and then they right. leave right <laughs> exactly I mean that's where I. That's where I use the, the if you like, use the Jungian archetypes. I mean, these are ideas that just resonate. These mm-hmm. are stories that just seem to tap into something that's all, that's instinctual within us. And it, it's, it, it just exists, and to deny it seems silly to me. For sure. And it's, that's one of the things I'm covering in my book is that it's – that okay, even if you don't believe that there's a demon named Asmodeus um, or Asmodai who's supposed to be the, the – demon in hell that's like the personification of the sin of lust, you don't have to believe in that to know that sleeping with your friend's girlfriend might not be such a good idea. Um, right. <laughs> you know, and that there are consequences for doing so that usually have a very permanent effect on your relationships and your reputation. Right. Yeah, the only question is, are you the type of person who's willing to uh, ask questions before you take action? Sure. And, that, you know, and once again, are you being willing or are you being willful? And in many cases, like as Jacques Fresco points out, there are supernatural explanations that we people gave for certain things to, to justify certain, like, you know, beliefs. Like, But, I mean, like, you know, obviously the one he usually uses is people who think that if you throw your brother in the law in a, in a volcano, it won't erupt. Now, that's a more ignorant example, but I, I looked at examining the, the virtues and the sins. Um, I realized that, you know, these were attempts by mankind to try to bring some sense to the idea of, well, there's obviously some really bad things that happen to you when you do these things, and then there are some really good things that happen to you when you do these things. And it's typical, particularly of primitive man, to kind of come up with personifications or images of that, you know, sure. when they're when they're meditating on those concepts. So, you know, that's why, you know, I say to people to just to seriously consider for a moment what they determine to be the symbolism of their higher powers whether they believe that they're actually, you know, entities or not. Um, you know, ironically, uh, most Satan worshipers that you talk to don't believe that Satan actually exists. They use him as a personification of uh, whatever it is they're trying to accomplish. I, I certainly would pick different imagery if I were them. Um, but uh, you know, but that, that's what they're doing. Um, and uh, either way, though, uh, you know, I think that um, as far as how it applies to how we interact with one another – there's an aspect to things that could be called spiritual that also just has to do with uh, the elements of um, how mankind interacts with one another and how we interact with our environment and how there is a holistic balance that is seen 
um, that can be achieved once people really understand their roles, uh, really understand their uh, essentially the ramifications of the decisions they're making and how we can interact in sync um, as a as a species that's looking forward towards you know looking forward towards its future for the betterment of the whole. Um, those aspects, you know, have a kind of a spiritual element to them, regardless of whether or not you assign that to any supernatural activity. It's right, still, right. you know, there's a there's a tranquil thing that you feel when you're in harmony with the people around you. Exactly. You know? Consensus is a beautiful thing, and that's something we talked about and that I write about. And I think, once again, using the example of the species as an individual, well, then each indiv- each individual in that species is like a synapse in a giant brain, right? I mean, so there is, there is a congruity there when that, when we are all in, in the right orders and the right uh, relation to each other, that we're definitely working together in a way, you know, if the brain was constant, different parts of the brain were constantly uh, shooting different signals all around that, that, that being wouldn't accomplish much. So certainly when the brain gets in sync and ideas flow together in proper orders, that being is a, able to move forward so there's definitely some logic and sensibility to all that and um you know jumping to the i i never jumping back to that example quick you made of the uh of throwing the brother-in-law in the volcano you know sure. uh i kept I think there's a couple of interesting points there um you know one i never doubt anything is possible in that I never say for sure that throwing your brother-in-law in that volcano won't cause the earth to say, oh, okay, I'll, maybe I'll cut you guys a break. I'm, seems silly on a lot of levels, I agree, but William James put it best, and he, he, he believed, he almost killed himself uh, because he believed that, you know, he was going down this road of predetermination, and the whole universe was predetermined, and it was driving him insane, so what's the point of my existence if everything's predetermined? I mean, so he wrote, he came out of that, when he came out of that funk and decided not to kill himself is when he wrote one of his best essays ever, or series, I guess it was, Will to Believe. And in that, he said, you know, he states that the universe will meet you halfway. That (laughs) you believe in a certain reality, well, and a lot of people believe in that certain reality, well, who knows? Maybe that is, maybe that is what creates reality. Maybe in a way we are the creators of reality. Maybe we are more than we think. Dwayne Elgin and the living universe taps on this theme as well. Are we really just the final step in a long, long uh, evolution of the universe and started with the Big Bang, led to the, you know, the cooling off and the creation of galaxies and stars and planets, and then on a few planets that were just the right temperatures and all this stuff, life was created and life evolved. Are we the final step in all that, or are is there something going on where there really is a spiritual aspect where we are the creators of it all and that we really do. So I, I don't ever give up on that possibility. I always consider that, you know, the well, other thing about uh, real, real quick, no, go ahead, go ahead. A different point. So, uh, you know, I don't mean to jump the discussion around too much, but you know, throwing a brother in a volcano, maybe a subtle way of population control as well. <laughs> then, and we all got to admit, you know, we lived in a world Maybe, you know, we're one, we've really got a question. Is this planet capable of supporting 7 billion people? You know, is, if it is, is it capable of supporting 10 billion people or will be in another few decades, 20 billion? Uh, the, the population growth, a sobering estimate, I mean, population growth is lowering pretty significantly. That's a good sign. 
But, I mean, we, we for a long time there, we were doubling every 30 years. At that rate, here's a sobering statistic for you. If we continue to double our population every 30 years, at the end of about 3,000 years, human protoplasm will make up the entire mass of the entire universe. <laughs> oh, wow. No, so, <laughs> Uh-oh, Ray. I mean, now you've, you've crossed the threshold. Clearly, you've been taken over by the New World Order. I mean, being conscious of the of the, of the population of the planet, well, that that's obviously evil. Um, and yes, I'm being sarcastic. Uh, uh, we, we get that actually frequently because the Venus Project suggests, you know, we should probably become conscious of the impact of the amount of people we have on this planet um, and try to ensure that it, it measures up with the carrying capacity of the Earth. Um, right. And because some people watch a lot of Alex Jones, they get the idea that that meant we were going to round people up in camps or something, um, which is ridiculous. Um, and I think that more to the point, though, is that we're not going to have to, uh, you know, if, even if we wanted to. It's not going to be necessary to round people up in camps because people are going to start dying off on their own due to mass starvation um, and the other complications that come around with, you know, overcrowding. and. Right. And so, I mean, Jacques feels that through the proper application of science, we could extend the carrying capacity of the Earth um, without hurting the Earth uh, quite a bit. Uh, but even then, we're still going to have to be conscious of, you know, what, of how, basically of how many people are here. And I remember, actually, because this came up when Jacques Fresco went to Occupy Miami, there were some people that were doing this stupidity of trying to suggest that, you know, he was part of some New World Order, you know, depopulation agenda, and this lady was like, which one of my seven children is going to have to die, you know, so that we can have this, you know, thing that you're talking about? And he's like, I never said anything about killing your children, you know. And then what popped into my head was, well, maybe you should have asked yourself that before you decided to have seven children. You know, these are the decisions that you have to make. You know, if you've only got so many resources, it's not some evil person's fault that one of your that your children may starve. It's your fault, <laughs> You know, yeah. nobody's going to have to do anything to make that happen. It's going to happen on its own. If everybody I, selfishly looks at it that way, then people are going to die. Right. That's correct. You know, yeah. and that's why I, I basically just kind of, you know, people are looking, you know, I'm like, well, do you really think that we can just be fruitful and multiply forever? You know, there's finite resources here. I mean, it's like. It let's you know I usually use the spaceship example like I told you earlier because it's much easier to kind of scale it down so that people can look at the vast implications of it. But if you're on a spaceship and you know that there's only enough resources and food on the spaceship to to feed and you know and, and take care of seven people, then if a woman decides to have seven more children and those and, and then now people are dying. Is that like someone's fault other than hers? You know, uh, that was it a good decision on her part to bring those children into that situation in the first place? Right. You know, and that that's basically the the point about depopulation agendas. And I'm sorry about the mild rant. I just the the freedom movement in general is up in arms about this notion, and there's a huge difference between suggesting we should be conscious of population, and and then. The difference between that and suggesting we should round people up into camps and throw them in plastic coffins. Right, yeah. exactly. I mean, ancient cultures. That's what I. That's kind of the point I was getting at. The more, the older the culture, okay, the closer it was to um, the pre pre fall era. In other words, you know, mankind being in balance and living as one with all had understanding, uh, inherent 
understandings of this. I mean, and I, I, I suspect it's there in all of us. Uh, they recognize that, you know, it, it, we live for a time, but it's time to, to move on and allow the other people to live, our, our our children to live. They get to have their turn now. I mean, that's just a perfectly valid concept and that we don't want to create too many children that there's not enough for them to enjoy. Um, they had a very inherent sense of the balance with nature and never wanted to take more than necessary. And, you know, this leads into a really controversial area where I'm still not 100% clear, but I recognize is, 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 a, is a great conflict where these tribal cultures, you know, um, would while they respected, quote, you know, Lockean natural rights within their culture, the right to life, liberty, property, these kind of things amongst themselves in their tribe, they certainly had no respect, you know, intertribal. So, in other words, they were going around murdering, stealing, and enslaving other members, and that was perfectly okay. And that, uh, so this created a natural balance for population control. Gosh, I, 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 it's, it's, it, it twists my brain and my heart to say that is there, is it valid to, to kill over resources? But that's a question we, we have to look at in the way things were for a time. Well, let me give you what my answer would be based on my own studies, and that would be to say that uh, we are a civilized race. We have access to technologies that the, the those people did not, um, and that we should also – another powerful tool is education. Um, you let people know, well, this is how many people can live here. And, you know, uh, it comes back to the, the analogy with the mother again. you got to ask yourself where this problem starts. It's a chicken or the egg argument. Well, for me, it's not. Um, the argument is – Let's say, for example, your child is already alive. Okay, um, you as a parent decide to take your child to a barren place where there's nothing there and there's no food for them. Okay, uh, that's the decision that you're essentially making by having children in that situation. You know, it's easier to get the context if you're if the child's already born. But the reality is, you consciously chose to take your child somewhere where there's no food to take care of them. That's obviously your fault. When it comes to the issue of what are the solutions, we can use technology to create you know, food and take care of this planet. And then afterwards, we just have to educate people to that, get people aware of the ramifications. Um, and that means that there will be some burps in the system, obviously, as people are adjusting. But the reality is, is that you know, if, there, if most parents who have been educated to the reality of the situation don't they actively do make decisions to have less children okay yeah well yeah it, that's that's a clear sign the the more developed the culture the society i guess would be the sure. best, lower the population rate and that's and that just means that you know you you choose not to have them at that point there are some people who i think a large part of it is just that mankind is spoiled we we believe that you know we we have allowed ourselves to believe especially in the united states that we can just go on doing what we're doing forever and that anyone who suggests otherwise is an evil oppressor, even if we're not talking about stopping them ourselves, even if we're just talking about the situation. You know, it's like, that's why I use the example that I gave you when we were talking offline. It's like when I'm discussing with libertarians about the possibility of needing to be more conscious of how we manage resources and not allowing it just to flip and flop around in a market, um, you know, if if you have enough and you're trading amongst yourselves, that's one thing. But there's going to come a point where you need to be conscious of, well, wait a minute here, we we can't let people trade this because there's only so much of it left. And if and if we just 
expend it willy-nilly, then there's not going to be any more. You know, exactly. Even yeah. a market person would have to look at it that way. It's not profitable, obviously, to let a commodity go under. Right, um, right. I think the core of what you're getting at here uh, – sorry to interrupt. No, go ahead. But is, is uh, you know, as population density increases, the need for consensus grows – the need to recognize that we do have to have an intention to agree amongst each other. Uh, as populate when it, when a very low density population, the individual's mindset is great. It it works. The problem we have, the balance we seek, I guess, ultimately, um, to return to grace, as my book would put it, is um, to find the balance where that though. You know, individualist to me, I guess, is probably a pretty basic approach to the world a pretty selfish approach to the world, but that's okay. That doesn't mean it's bad inherently. Somebody who's at that position in life ought to be able to be at that position in life because I find, I believe that seeing my own journey as a strong individualist for most of my life, that at some point I did on my own come to the conclusion that it's worth investing my time and energy to, uh, to seek consensus amongst the collective for various things. That's, some, that's a decision I made. At that point, it is not... It is not a negative thing. It is a positive thing. It is a spiritual bond with my fellow man. There's, there's a, but there's a, a complete difference between a spiritual bond with your fellow man and a tyrannical approach to demanding that those who aren't ready to do that do it anyway. And that's the balance we have to seek. There needs to be a place for individualists to go be individualists if, they, so if that's where they're at. Well, allow me to well, allow me to add something to that. Um, I don't know if you've seen the movie A Beautiful Mind with Russell Crowe talking about. Um, I'm going to forget Russell Nash. I think his name was was the fellow who came up with the point that it is best for the individual to do what is best for themselves and the group because they're part of the group. Somebody has to take these people aside, at least on critical issues, and well, make sure, a you, note. That's classic Adam Smith, right? There. Right. Of yeah. Well, it's like it's still in your individual best interest that things that affect the whole world. That you happen to live on, it, you know, are still right. observed. You right, know, exactly. it, but you have to reach that conclusion on your own. Oh well, for sure. And I think that, but to help people, and I do agree with you that in many cases these are lessons that have to be learned the hard way. You know, just like you know, many lessons that adolescents learn, particularly teenagers, you can tell them all day, don't you know, don't hang out with that kid. It's going to lead you somewhere that you're not going to like. They may not listen until they've they've gotten bitten, and unfortunately, that means that. You know, that sometimes that children are going to die, you know, and I still try to protect them, obviously. But some lessons, particularly about human interaction and such, really need to be learned yourself because you're not going to really get it, you know, until you feel it yourself. I think that my, what I was getting at, though, is to suggest that if you are a person who feels that an individual's behavior is not good for the whole, you need to take it from a perspective of even even a selfish person when told, well, hey, you know, if you do that thing, you're going to die too. <laughs> you know, that they'll get it, you know, eventually. It reminds me, actually, ironically, of a episode of Transformers <laughs> back when I was a kid. Uh, the leader of the Dinobots, Grimlock, you know, you know, like, was they were asking him, well, we need you to help us with this thing. And he's like, you know, me, Grimlock, you know, no care. A whole planet blow up for all me care. And then... Uh, Wheeljack looks at him and says, with you on it, oh, you have a point there. <laughs> you know, um, and I guess that's what I'm saying. So yes, they have a right to, to explore that. What I'm going to suggest to the audience is to people who encounter people like this, you're better off trying to help them understand that it's still in their best interest 
to to basically to look at these things to to be right, well, aware of these things. But the the most careful the most careful part of that is make sure you don't look down on somebody who's who's at that position. I mean, sure. that, you know, just because they they're they're in a selfish mode of life or they're they're in a very individualistic mindset, I just you know we can't say there's something inherently wrong with that. Uh, it's it's a you know it's a very natural instinctive way to act. It's 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 everywhere in nature. Okay. Mm-hmm. Every every creature on the earth is acting almost completely selfishly, with 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 exceptions. But um, so yeah, we don't want to look down on them, and we we need to respect that they have the right to do that and to be that. And I think that that requires some space to move, and that gets where we get back into population density. I mean, we do need to get have space for people. I mean, the American frontier is a perfect example. That's what made America great, right? I mean, mm-hmm. people came from all over the world in these high-density population, highly collectivized, where you had no choice but to enter into constant consensus, negotiations with everything for every process. And that just got very frustrating to a lot of people, especially in the tyrannical meme that is getting done in, in the powers of royalty and such. So they found America. And what was the one single thing that America had was room to move. You didn't like the culture. You didn't like the society way. All you had to do was move west, and that existed for a few centuries, if not several. So it really did allow this country to be a beacon of hope because that was a little small window into taking a step back in this crusade we're on to control and conquer everything. That was a little window back into a simpler way of life when one could just go out into the wilderness and simply exist. You know, How about that? A rabbit is born. He gets to go and exist. Right, a man can't do that, you know. And there's some there's something inherently strange about that to me. But the frontier for a time offered that, offered a little glimpse backwards on that, and that's what made this country such a great thing. For sure, you know. And I think that uh, this has actually been an excellent conversation. We're coming down to the last three minutes. Uh, uh, first of all, Ray, I guess you know since this is a book that's in progress, you know we'll definitely have to have another one of these shows, like a follow up, uh, when you're finished. Um, and uh, is there? I guess it, you know if people want to look at any of your work now. You probably don't have anywhere for them to go as of yet. Um, am I wrong about that? Or yeah, no. Just I mean, you can connect with me on Facebook. That's about it for now. Uh, that's and it's Razor Forty Two R A Y Z E R Four Two. Facebook.com slash Razor42. And, uh, yeah, that's that's it. I'm kind of reconstructing my uh, online presence here. So, Excellent, excellent. Well, to those of you um, who have tuned in to, today, uh, thank you for tuning into V Radio. Please visit my website, v-radio.org. Um, I'm sure you'll be hearing from Ray Powell. I'll probably bring him on as a panelist for other shows in the future. I presume you'd be interested in that, Ray. Yes, sir. Be glad to do it. And um, also, uh, you know, basically you know continue to look at the archives check out the shows that i've done previously and if you have any ideas for future shows or any guests that you'd like to see on please get in touch with me um when you do so though please try to give me some kind of uh contact information for those individuals because um otherwise it it definitely takes a really freaking long time to do all of that um i'm going to leave you guys with some words from jock fresco and roxanne meadows if you liked what you heard today please consider uh giving a donation at v-radio.org. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is John Fresco. And you're listening to V-Radio.